Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Before we get to my interview with David Litt, I want to let you know that our weekend news roundup and analysis, which typically comes out every Saturday, will be coming out on Sunday this week. President Trump is set to announce his Supreme Court pick on Saturday, and Kristen and I thought it would be better to hold off 24 hours so that we could discuss the president's pick. My guest today is David Litt, who from 2011 to 2016 was a speechwriter for President Obama. Mr. Litt is also the New York Times bestselling author of the book, Thanks, Obama, my hopey changey White House years. His latest book is Democracy in One Book or Less, How It Works, Why It Doesn't, and Why Fixing It is Easier Than You Think, which we'll be talking about today. David Litt, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. So you begin the book by focusing on uh, sort of a, I guess I'll call him sort of a pet peeve, uh, a man who irritates me greatly, as listeners know, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, about Mitch McConnell, you write, with the sole glaring exception of Trump, no politician in recent memory has so blatantly, is, sorry, has been so blatantly transactional. And no politician, including Trump, has so openly treated accumulation of power as a sport. Now, in reading that, I certainly agreed, but also I know an awful lot of conservatives who would say, well, you know, that's what a good Senate majority leader does. And so that means that Mitch McConnell is just someone who we should congratulate as Republicans for being a very effective Senate majority leader, much more so perhaps than his Democratic predecessor, Harry Reid. And I want to get your take on that. What do you think? Well, I think it depends on what you think power is for. If you think power is an, an end rather than a means, the sole purpose of having power is to get even more power, then Mitch McConnell has done an outstanding job as Senate Majority Leader. If you think, um, as our founders did and as virtually all great Americans have, that the purpose of having power is to in some way improve people's lives, in some way uh, deliver for the people you represent, then Mitch McConnell has done an extraordinarily poor job as Senate Majority Leader. And I think um, in the question that you asked, we're seeing an example of the way in which Mitch McConnell's approach toward politics is much bigger than just him. And it's bigger even than Trump. It's a way of thinking about politics as sports where the whole purpose is winning. Um, The difference of course, is that in other competitions, if in basketball and baseball and football, winning is the purpose of the game. That's not supposed to be true in politics. And I think that's fundamentally what McConnell doesn't understand. And so many of us end up paying the price for his lack of understanding, because while he doesn't get that, he's very smart about a lot of other things. 
Well, I wonder if it's not so much that he doesn't understand, it's that he understands, but he just fundamentally disagrees or doesn't care, which to me is is kind of is kind of worse. I've made the argument that I have more of a problem with Mitch McConnell than Donald Trump because Mitch Mitch McConnell certainly knows better. And I, what do what do you think? I don't know. I think it's almost not worth our our time to wonder who knows better, who doesn't. Sure. My experience of politicians in general is that they tend to their temperament tends to reflect their strengths and weaknesses and and what they know and what they don't. So I suspect that Mitch McConnell, there's a certain line at which you have to, the difference between not caring and not knowing um, becomes very, very blurred. So I don't know if the issue is that Mitch McConnell doesn't care about the, um, the broader purpose, the, the public interest side of being in Congress or whether he just doesn't, really understand that that's part of the process. And instead, he thinks about it as he describes in his autobiography. He was a failed high school baseball player and said, well, here's a sport I can really excel at. I'm not sure, but um, I will certainly say it doesn't matter for for the rest of us. Right. (laughs) The the outcome for us is the same either way. Yeah. And the remedy is the same either way. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, in the first part of your book, you, you focus on who gets to vote? And you start by looking at adults who are legally disenfranchised and particularly former felons and immigrants. And I wanted to start with former felons. Why do you think that they should have their rights automatically restored? Well, I would ask a different question. Um, when we think about voting rights in the United States, most of us understand voting as a, an innate right that we have. That's not how our founders understood voting, but it's how we've understood voting as modern Americans for the certainly the better part of this century. And the question then becomes, why shouldn't you have voting rights if you don't? And if you look at the case of former felons, it's a particularly egregious example because we're talking about people who have committed a felony, but have done their time and are now out of prison. And not only that, um, in many cases, three million would-be voters in 2016 these people were not even on parole or probation. So according to society, they've served their time. They've paid their debts back to society. They've reentered and they are full citizens. And yet for some reason, we say the one um, right that is fundamental to citizenship, the right to vote, is restricted to you. And the, when you look at the historical, um, the historical story behind why these ex-felons are not being allowed to vote, you start to see why the what the answer is. There's no principle in it. Uh, these sets of laws were created in the wake of the Civil War as a way of keeping black Americans from voting um, after it was no longer legal to do so outright because of the passage of the 15th Amendment. And now we are experiencing the legacy of those efforts back in the 1860s. And this is an issue where I think uh, we've seen a lot of progress with the number of states actually moving to restore voting rights, oftentimes automatically to former felons. And right now, the the largest state in which that's an issue is Florida. But they actually passed the constitutional amendment not too long ago to change this. But the story is a little more complex than that, isn't it? Yeah, what we're seeing is and, and I just want to step back for a second. Sure. Historically, anytime people start to think that if one group votes, it's going to be bad for their party. In America, you tend to see politicians try to to take away those people's voting rights. It's one of the challenges, one of the fundamental problems in American society 
our constitution does not have the right to vote built into it. Many state constitutions do, but our federal constitution does not. So in many cases, even though we think of voting as a right, voting is still treated like a privilege. And that makes it very tempting for politicians to try to win elections by taking away the voting rights of their opponents rather than by trying to persuade those opponents to become supporters. So what we've seen in Florida is that because of the racist nature of these laws when they were passed in the 1860s in Florida, where up to 90 percent of black voters were disenfranchised because of felony disenfranchisement laws and because of the racial disproportionate impact of our criminal justice system today, where the vast majority of people are uh, who are uh, arrested and charged with felonies for, let's say, marijuana possession, there, there's a huge disproportionate impact on non-white communities compared to on white communities. You add all of that up, and these laws are disenfranchising non-white voters at much higher rates than they're disenfranchising white voters. And so the Republicans, who are currently in control of all of the branches of Florida's government, have done whatever they can to keep all of that in place. So voters went and said, uh, by, by the way, not just Democrats, 60 percent of Florida, more than 60 percent, said we want to restore voting rights to these former felons. They've served their time. They deserve to be full members of society. The state legislature then tried to go around that and say, well, if you want to do that, we can't stop you. But they have to pay back all of the fines and the fees associated with their incarceration. Yes. And that can be tens of thousands of dollars. So for many people, this is not realistic. And not only that, the Florida legislature didn't set up a process to let people know how much money they owe. So people might be deterred from voting, even if they have had their rights restored, because they're scared. There's no way to figure out whether or not you have voting rights again. And so we're still seeing this play out in court. I think in the long run, uh, Florida's voters will probably be able to influence what their government does. But it's a reminder of how far some politicians are willing to go to win elections by keeping people from voting rather than by persuading people with their ideas or their arguments. And, you know, we'll still talk about immigrants. And I think this is maybe a little more of a, well, this would raise some more questions for people than former felon, former felons voting. I, I think most people would just assume that if you're not a citizen, regardless of your immigration status, uh, that, well, non-citizens have never been allowed to vote. And the idea of, of having them vote is just, just nuts, basically. But, in the book, you talk about the historical record on that, and the story's a, a bit different there, isn't it? It really is. I have to say, I was very surprised by this, because I didn't write this book as a political scientist or, or even as someone who did the reading in college. <laughs> uh, I was someone who read the introductions of books in college and then kind of, you know, feigned uh, <laughs> understanding of the conclusion. Yeah. And so when I went back and looked through this, I found, um, I learned that 38 states at one point or another have allowed non-citizens to vote. So that's nearly 80% of the country has at one time allowed non-citizens to vote. Now today, in most parts of the country, non-citizens can't vote, but in a few of, in few parts of the country, they can vote in local elections, not federal elections. But one of the things that really struck me about this was that when our founders were thinking about voting restrictions, they were much more strict than we are. Uh, John Adams, for example, said, you know, can you imagine if women could vote, if people without a lot of money could vote, if teenagers could vote? He was very concerned about what all this would mean for America. He was not concerned about non-citizens voting. And in part, that's because of the idea of no taxation without representation. The flip side was, well, 
if you pay taxes, you should be represented. And there are tens of millions of immigrants who pay taxes. Many of them serve in our military, and they have no voting rights, despite the fact that they meet the qualifications that our founders would have been very comfortable with at a time when voting was actually much more restricted than it is today. Well, that sounds like an argument that should appeal to you know Tea Party members, basically. It should. But I think one of the things that you start to learn is um, in the book, I call it tooth fairy logic, right? So uh, it does not make logical sense that the tooth, that this flying magical beast shows up in your house and delivers money in exchange for teeth. But on the other hand, there are a lot of really powerful incentives to believe. <laughs> yeah. And so when the incentives are lined up in your interest, and this is true, I think, for all parties, but I think it, it's come to define the Republican Party in some really important ways. Then you start to to rationalize. Um, you know, it's Ben Franklin who said, "Man is a reasonable creature; he can come up with a reason for anything." And so, when you see the, um, the the change in attitude on immigration, we tend to think that it's driven by either racism or economic anxiety. But in fact, the real change in immigration started and views toward immigration started around the 1970s when naturalized citizens became more likely to vote for Democrats than they had been before. Before that, not new citizens were basically 50-50. So once new citizens started voting for Democrats, more and more Republicans began saying, wait a second, let's not allow these people to become citizens. And that's historically been the way that in the modern era, we have dealt with this problem of voting and immigration is not by saying we will enfranchise non-citizens, but by saying we will create pathways to citizenship so that people can earn their right to be an American and with it, their right to vote. That, and I think that's a, just an incredibly important point that motivated reasoning is very bipartisan. And most people sort of start from their preferred outcomes and reason their way backward. And, and I, I think you're right that we see a lot of that with uh, the GOP and, and voting rights. Uh, so what is your proposal for voting rights for immigrants? I, I thought it was really interesting. One. I was hoping you could explain a little bit about it and the sort of impact it might have. So I would, I would separate immigrants into at least two categories here. The first is green card holders. So if you hold a green card in the United States, that means that you have publicly committed to staying here. In most cases, it means that you have a close family member, a spouse, a child, a parent, who is an American, um, you certainly pay taxes. And as a, as a country, we trust you to serve in our military. Um, if, if tomorrow the president you know, gets us into a, a war he shouldn't, green card holders will fight and die for their country, but they can't vote in their country. So I would start with green card holders and say there's no reason green card holders in particular should not be allowed to vote. In some states and some counties, they can already vote in local elections, not at the state level yet, but in some some local elections. Um, and clearly, we're not seeing, you know, the, those counties are not becoming somehow worse than the ones that uh, that don't allow it. And so I would start with that. Green card holders seems to me is, is a category of people where voting rights should be extended to those immigrants. Now, when it comes to undocumented immigrants, people who broke the law to get here, I think we should do what we have done in the past and create pathways to citizenship that people can earn over time. So I don't think we should automatically give you um, voting rights if you've been in this country for, say, a decade and you came here illegally. But I do think we should create some way for you to pay whatever taxes you owe, even though you're already paying some taxes now. Um, you should have to get in the back of the line of the legal process. You should pay a fine. But after all of that, 
you should be able to become a citizen and vote. And I would point out that's how we've done it throughout my lifetime, throughout the 20th century. It's only been in relatively recent years that we have one party that is against the idea of immigration reform and creating pathways to citizenship. So this is a radical new era that we've entered where we are trying to keep people from being citizens, create this group of, um, you know, an underclass of Americans, people who live here, but don't have the rights of other constituents that people represent. And, and the last thing I would just note about this is when it comes to um, undocumented immigrants, right, our, our country, our constitution requires that undocumented immigrants be counted in the census. It requires that representatives represent them. When we think about who the represent, you know, who somebody is representing, um, the Constitution doesn't say, did they get here legally or not? And so we, it, it's important to recognize just how much our view, or at least how much one party's view, has shifted on this issue, again, motivated entirely by politics and not by principles. Right. So the idea essentially being, it seems that if the demographics of the electorate are against your ideas, instead of changing your ideas to reach out to that segment, you try to change the electorate, basically. That's exactly right. I mean, Rush Limbaugh said in, in 2018, so this is pretty recent, he said, I would be happy to support immigration reform as much as you want if, as part of that, you said new immigrants, new citizens couldn't vote for 15 or 25 years. <laughs> so he's just giving away the game, right? All yeah. he's saying is, I don't really care about the economics of it. I don't even care about the white nationalism element of it. All I care about is that this new group of voters not be allowed to vote because otherwise I'm worried my allies will lose their grip on power. Right. Well, it gets back to the Mitch McConnell point you made at the beginning of the book in our conversation about what is what is politics for. And if it becomes a game of just holding power at any cost, well, then that kind of is, is against the basic idea of, of, of representative democracy, I would argue. And I'm sure you'd agree. Absolutely. And it leads you to do things that are really catastrophic. I think we're seeing that right now during the pandemic. There's a broad sense. I mean, think about during the pandemic, there was this idea, um, as, as I think it was New York Magazine reported, that the White House started off by saying, well, this is a blue state problem, so it doesn't really hurt voters who matter to us, so let's just not worry as much about it. And when you have that kind of thinking, it doesn't just, it's not just sort of wrong on a moral or ethical level, it leads politicians to make really catastrophic decisions for people they're supposed to be representing. And unfortunately, we're living through that right now. Now, in addition to legally disenfranchised people we've just been talking about, there are also a lot of potential voters that you term the unofficially disenfranchised. And uh, I was hoping you could explain that term and, and how big of a problem you see unofficially disenfranchised voters as being. It's important to separate the people who can't vote into different categories. So exactly like you said, some people have literally no voting rights. If, if you are a green card holder and you try to vote in an election, um, it's illegal. You, you, would, you would be breaking the law. Now, many other people have voting rights in theory, but they can't exercise those voting rights. One of the reasons for this is because of our voter registration system, which was conceived and, and has for centuries not really been a tool to make sure that lists of voters are accurate, but been used to keep people off of lists even though they should technically be eligible. So that's one group of people, people who can't even register. And then, of course, there's what's uh, commonly now termed voter suppression. So that's people who are trying to vote, but for a variety of reasons, their votes aren't counting, whether that's because they're not able to cast a vote when they get to the polling place, because let's say they've been purged from the voter rolls, 
or because after they cast a vote, their signatures aren't matching. And that beca- that's a new rule that was instated to try to throw out even more votes. So all of these different ways to try to invalidate ballots after they've been cast. And of course, President Trump is now going even further, although it seems questionable if he'll succeed. But what he would like to do is try to invalidate as many ballots as possible that arrive after Election Day um, and thereby not count an even larger number of ballots. Now, none of that should, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, does it even matter to vote? Absolutely, you should go vote. But it's important to recognize that for many, many people, making your vote count is much harder than it needs to be, and it's much harder than it used to be. And in many cases, as you point out in the book, you might might actually think your vote counts, but it doesn't, and you may not even ever know that your vote didn't count, right? That's the new frontier in voter suppression, in destroying people's ballots. What is happening, just to give you one example, so um, Arizona has a law, I believe Florida uses a similar law, called signature matching. So they compare, an election official compares two different signatures, let's say on the um, your absentee ballot and then on your voter registration form or on the outer envelope of, a, of your um, ballot and your the inner envelope. And if that election official decides that those signatures don't match, that ballot gets thrown out. And this is not a standard that any trained forensic investigator could use in a court case. No one, you know, I talked to Mark Elias, who's the leading Democratic voting rights attorney on this issue. And he said, you know, if a forensic investigator tried to decide just from two signatures whether they match or not, that person would be basically thrown out of court, right? They, that's malpractice. But we're allowing election officials to do this. And I will say as somebody, I mean, I've signed a lot of books um, between this book and the last one. And I don't think my signature has ever met. A lot of young people who didn't grow up learning cursive are in the same boat. So what you're seeing is someone could throw out a ballot and then in many cases not even tell you or make it incumbent on you to find out that your ballot never counted. So all of these things are coming together. And again, it's not a, um, you know, it, it shouldn't be a cause for despair for those of us who care about democracy, but it should be a reminder of how desperate uh, a lot of the people currently in power in the United States are to hang on to that power and how um, insecure they are about the power of their ideas. And I, when, when I read that part in the book, you know, I, I actually signed my name a few times and looked at my driver's license signature and thought, geez, I have no idea whether my vote in Ohio counted. And that was that was a real a real concern. And I think a, an underreported part of this. And I'm glad you brought that to light in your book. Uh, yeah, and it's it's important to just recognize state by state. I think you were just saying Ohio, right? Yeah. So, for example, I don't know off the top of my head whether Ohio has a signature matching law like Arizona's. Colorado is a good example of a state that changed their requirements to make the default assumption that you count a ballot rather than you throw it out, which makes a lot of sense. So that's another thing that Americans have to do because of the way our election process works. You need to to know your own state's rules. And every state has a different set of rules. And so that's just the burden on American citizens to, to um, what you need to do in order to know everything about how the election works, how your vote is counted. Um, you know, it's just it's a lot of hoops that we all have to jump through. And in other countries, they don't do it that way. They try to make it easy rather than difficult for you to vote. Now, a lot of folks on the right would say, well, 
we need to be concerned about the integrity of elections. Whenever I talk about this with my conservative host on the show, he talks, you know, he brings up stories about people getting multiple registrations and dead people voting and this and that. And I had a friend or I, you know, whatever, my dog got a ballot and whatever. Don't you think we need reasonable registration and ID requirements? So I wish your co-host was on the show because lo- I love talking to people about this stuff. Let me start with a couple of basic things. Um, there's a huge difference between someone getting, say, a ballot and someone being able to cast that ballot and it counting. So, right. um, you know, the President Trump now, I think it's safe to say he just makes stuff up. So we, I, I'm willing to assume this isn't true. But let's for a moment say he, he's used two stories that remind me of what you just said your co-host describes. Number one, he said he has a friend whose son died and got a ballot or got a ballot request. Now, if that happens, you still can't fill out your ballot and send it back. That's not so. So the danger to the election is not that people are mistakenly registered. It's that people mistakenly vote. There's no evidence of that occurring. And every time they check, there's clear evidence it doesn't occur. The same thing with your dog. Now, I have no idea how many dogs are on <laughs> registration lists. Uh, they tend not to have last names. So there's a there, that's a flag right there. Um, but even if your dog was registered, your dog can't vote. That's the important thing here. So it's the um, you know, it's like saying, uh, you know, there's dead people who are still licensed drivers. Well, yes, there are dead people who are licensed drivers, but it doesn't mean they're driving around. And so the the claims that we're seeing about fraud, it's important to recognize, first of all, they are totally false. It doesn't mean that fraud never occurs. Uh, but as far as we can tell, when it comes to in-person voter fraud in particular, Fraud occurs about one out of every 35 million times. So we can expect fraud to swing an election, to threaten an integrity, the integrity of a presidential election sometime around the year 120 million AD. So if your co-host is still alive, then <laughs> I concede the point. Now, the second thing that's important to recognize about these claims of fraud is that they're not just people who are incorrect. The way that our legal system works is that if you claim fraud and you're wrong, it doesn't matter that you're wrong. You can still use your completely made up fear of fraud to restrict people's legitimate right to vote. And that's where we are seeing elections be uh, the results are being influenced. Because just to give you a really quick example, in Florida in 2000, 12,000 African-American voters were taken off the rolls in a voter purge. Now, of course, that was the year George Bush won that state by barely more than 500 votes. If he had lost, Al Gore would have become president. If those voters hadn't been mistakenly purged, he almost certainly would not have won that election. Al Gore almost certainly would have been president. So the subtraction of eligible voters, that really is a kind of election uh, issue that is costing and changing the, the legitimate results of elections. The idea that voters are being unfairly added because of fraud, there's just no evidence to back that up. So I would encourage your co-host uh, to focus on the real threats to our elections rather than ones that are imaginary. Jay, I hope you're listening. I totally agree. Uh, so we've talked about disenfranchised voters legally, unofficially disenfranchised voters. And then there's this third category. You call them the discouraged voters. Uh, how large of a group is this? And, you know, what's discouraging them? The easiest way to think about this is long lines. So long lines are not the only thing that can discourage you from voting. Just as an example, it could take you a long time to drive to your polling place. But the easiest way to think about it is, we see these stories now. They've become a, a sort of heartbreakingly regular feature of American elections. Lines that are stretching for three or four or, or more hours 
in order to cast a ballot. Some of those lines are there because we don't manage elections well. This is not just a red state problem. I want to just point that out. Um, New York City, where I'm from originally, is notorious for running elections really poorly, although they've started to try to fix it recently. And it's not because they're trying to disenfranchise people. It's because it's just a poorly run system, the same way the DMV in New York used to be pretty poorly run, um, although now it's a lot better from what I hear. The other thing that we are seeing, however, is the a new trend of what I call intentional incompetence. So just to give you one example, in the last, um, since 2008, between 2008 and 2016, America lost more than 10% of its polling places. And those cuts to polling places hit most heavily in minority-majority neighborhoods, minority-majority communities. And what that means is it's an attempt to lengthen the lines among minority voters and make it more arduous to cast a vote. So in 2012, um, black voters, for example, had to wait 23 minutes on average to vote, and white voters had to wait for only 12 minutes. So in other words, it's twice as difficult for black voters to exercise their fundamental rights as it is for white voters, or as it was in 2012. And that was not an atypical year by any means. So you add all of this up, and what you end up with is some people don't vote because the line is too long. And then a lot of social science research indicates if you don't vote, if you wait for an hour or more to vote one time around, you're also less likely to vote the next time around. So poor management of elections, whether by accident or increasingly on purpose, is making it essentially impossible for people to exercise their rights, again, even if they legally have them. And so this would be the result of a lot of decisions or non-decisions that are made between elections, things about making sure there's money for polling places and infrastructure and machines and training poll workers and all that sort of stuff, right? That's a big part of it. But we're also seeing these last minute changes now, particularly um, you know, in a lot of states where, and this really is a one-party problem, we're seeing Republican state secretaries of state, which is the office that tends to manage elections, make these last minute changes in order to make it harder to vote. Um, you know, Closing a polling place or moving a polling place. Um, Texas is notorious for doing that. Um, in, in the election in 2018, where Secretary of State Brian Kemp was running for governor of Georgia, so he was both refereeing and playing on the field at the same time, um, I think it was about a third of Atlanta's voting machines were locked up during the election. Now, there's no good reason for doing that. And lines stretched for hours and hours in Atlanta, which was not Brian Kemp's favorable turf, um, where things went a lot smoother, where people were going to vote for the Republican. And so what you're seeing over and over is a combination of uh, bad strategic decisions, um, in many cases, intentionally bad strategic decisions. And then you're also seeing last minute changes meant to do everything possible to make it hard to vote. Um, I'll just give you one more example. Uh, I talked to a, a now, now, I guess he's about my age. So at the time, he was casting his first ever vote in 2012. And he was this guy, Blake, who was in Florida. And he has migraines. So he's waiting for four hours in the Florida heat. And it, ultimately, he couldn't wait any longer just because he had health issues. He ended up you know, puking in a bathroom of a yes. Starbucks and had to leave the line. And the reason for this was that Florida legislatures, sorry, Florida legislators had added these really long ballot questions that made, you know, it was all gobbledygook to the ballot intentionally to force to confuse voters. And so if you, if everyone spent an extra three or four minutes reading the ballot, 
that can be the difference between a line that goes really smoothly or a line that lasts for hours. You add all of that up and you see that vote that, again, politicians are intentionally trying to harm their own constituents to keep them from voting. In part two of the book, you move from the voting process to uh, uh, about whose votes matter, I guess you could say. Uh, and that's when you begin by looking at the issue of gerrymandering. And you argue that, sure, both sides do it. Both major parties do it. But it actually ends up having a disproportionately negative effect on Democrats. Why is that? So the the issue becomes um Generally speaking, we take it for granted that everyone's votes count equally in most elections. So, you know, if we were just a bunch of friends deciding where to, what movie to see, or if we were having an election for parent-teacher association president or student body president, your vote and my vote, they all they count the same amount. In our most important elections, that's not true at all. Votes have wildly different amounts of power. And generally speaking, for a variety of reasons, and again, a combination of sort of his geographic trends and intentional uh, malfeasance, the votes of Republican voters count for more. They're more powerful than those of Democrats. There's a few different ways this is true. Number one, if you live in a competitive congressional district, your vote is very important. If you live in a presidential swing state, your vote is very important. If you live in a small state because of the way the Senate is structured, your vote is very important. And then finally, if you have a lot of money because of the shredding of our campaign finance laws, your vote, your uh, political preference is more important than ever. And so you have uh, I mean, you have some thoughts on gerrymandering and how congressional districts should be apportioned. Obviously, you don't think that the process we use right now is a good one. So what would you put in its place? Because, I mean, districts have to be carved out somehow. Districts do have to be carved out somehow, um, although actually it's worth noting when America started out, uh, a lot of states didn't actually carve yeah. any districts at all. So they just uh, they elected a whole slate of people to represent a state um, that had its own problems in, in fairness. But it's important to, to re re realize how new some of this stuff is. Now, when it comes to how we should be uh, drawing our districts, there's a variety of ways to do it fairly well. There's no way to do it perfectly. But some states use independent commissions, um, California, Arizona, uh, a, a whole bunch of other states. And what they're doing is saying partisan advantage cannot be included in our composition of our criteria for drawing a fair district. And I think part of those, those nonpartisan commissions, uh, those independent commissions are a great idea. I do think it's important that they apply to all states, not just to blue states or to red states. So ideally, you would see states of similar size with similar numbers of representatives hold hands and agree to do this together because that way no one gains an unfair advantage from it. So, for example, Virginia, which is now a blue state, um, could partner up with Georgia or even South Carolina and they could say, OK, well, let's each do an independent commission. We'll have similar rules. And therefore, by ungerrymandering Virginia or an ungerrymandering Georgia, neither party is going to get a major advantage from it. The people who will get an advantage are the voters whose votes matter more and who are um, confident that the district they live in is not being drawn just to benefit the, the person who you know is in charge of it. I mean, you're talking about Ohio. Ohio is right now one of the most gerrymandered states in the country, and it's created this incredibly lopsided result where no matter what some of your representatives do, they're going to hold office basically forever. Yeah. 
you kind of at least vaguely uh, referred to the the Great Compromise, which in the book you pretty clearly do not think is all that great at all, and that's a uh, agreement that led to all states, regardless of size, having you know two senators uh, and equal, I'm sorry, in population based representation in the House. And a lot of people would say, well, that's a very fair way to balance, you know, the interests of more populous and less populous states. But you you take issue with that to a certain extent, right? I I would say to a great extent. Okay. Um, the Great Compromise is the way I always learned about it in high school, and the way I you know I was taught about it. It turns out language is a funny thing. I think by great compromise, they meant significant compromise. And it was a significant compromise to say that every state will get an equal number of senators, even though in the House, the number of representatives you get is based on your state's population. Um, It was not a great compromise in the sense of a good compromise. And the reason for that is uh, Alexander Hamilton actually put it very well at the time. What he basically said is states are man-made constructs. They're the right people create them. So the question becomes, which is actually more important, the the rights and the preferences and the well-being of these artificial bodies that we have created or the rights and well-being of the people who have created them? And he said, you know, it would be absurd to suggest that the rights of the former are greater than the rights of the latter, except that's exactly what we've done. We've created a world where, uh, you know, land has value and people have less. and so the the important thing to recognize about that is not just that it happened, but also that the partisan impact of that decision hundreds of years ago is much bigger than it used to be because there's now the urban-rural divide in America, which is mapped very neatly onto a partisan divide where cities tend to be home to Democrats, rural areas tend to be home to Republicans. And as a result, the smaller-than-average states tend to be Republican-leaning. So um, Donald Trump, just to give you an example, he won 30 states even though he lost the national popular vote. So he won 60% of the states. And what that means is Republicans can get to a filibuster-proof Senate majority, 60 Senate votes, by only winning the states that Trump won. Whereas Democrats, if they won all the states that Hillary Clinton won, even though she won a majority of votes in that election, they would actually not be able to break a filibuster in the Senate. So it's definitely a disproportionate influence on Democrats. And and it, that, that relates to the Electoral College as well. It carries over because, of course, the Senate representation plus the House representation is the number of electoral votes. But there's also the uh, winner-take-all nature of it, which is problematic as well. So uh, what sort of improvements, or would you just scrap the Electoral College? I'd scrap the Electoral College. That's It's a no-brainer. But let me just actually clarify something. So the impact of the Electoral College um, because of the winner-take-all rules that you just mentioned, which are true in every state except for Maine and Nebraska, um, the, sen- the, the, the Great Compromise does not have a big impact on the Electoral College. It has a small impact. If you're from Wyoming, you get slightly more electors per person than you do if you're from California, but only slightly. And in fact, if you win California, your opponent has to win the 16 smallest states combined in order to equal out just right. that one state's electoral votes. So the idea that the Electoral College is giving small states, you know, letting them have a voice, it's just not borne out by the math. It's just not true. What is true is that the Electoral College gives presidential swing states, states that are competitive, an enormous amount of power. So it's intra- just to give you one example, um, you know, I, I started my career in politics as a field organizer in Ohio. 
And at the time, Ohio was the swing state. Right? It was the quintessential swing state. And so Ohio got tons of attention, both from the campaign and then also from political leaders afterward. Today, Ohio is, you know, could go either way in the 2020 election, but it's highly unlikely that Ohio is going to decide the election. And so suddenly, you know, people don't pay as much attention to Ohio. Ohio is now in the boat of most of the rest of the country. And it's now really just six states that are going to one of which is going to decide the election. And so, uh, again, it's important for listeners here to realize not only is that bad, it's also very new. Um, In 1960, for example, about two thirds of states were very, very close. They could have gone either way um, of of the tipping point result. In other words, like they most states looked like the country as a whole. Today, your chances of living in a swing state have gone from well more than half to well under one in four. Wow. So most people listening to this are, are going to cast a vote for president in a state where the, their vote is probably not going to make much of a difference. And, and that's new. And again, it means that a few voters have a lot more power and most of us have a lot less. And it makes a real difference to those voters. I, I teach actually across the Ohio River in Kentucky, and I've heard many of my students say, why exactly should I vote for president when we know exactly how Kentucky's going to go? And I don't necessarily have the greatest answer in the world for them. So I would say there's two pieces to this. One is, um, yeah, I think you see turnout actually rises a lot in swing states because when people think that their vote matters, they're more likely to go vote. Part of that is because we make it so difficult to vote, as we discussed earlier, that, you know, if your students could vote and it was really, really easy, they might say, OK, well, I don't have to worry about it that much. But if you're saying, well, I could be stuck online for two hours to cast a vote that doesn't matter. Um, yeah, I understand why people are reluctant to vote. Now, in the case of Kentucky, there could competi- um, potentially be a competitive Senate race. So I would say people have lots of good reasons to vote uh, in Kentucky and see if we can put an end to Mitch McConnell's uh, far too long Senate career. But, um, you know, I live in Washington, D.C. I will vote because I believe in voting. It's just a habit. Um, you know, I'll vote by mail and it won't be that difficult. But, um, you know, uh, 90 plus percent of Washingtonians will vote for, uh, you know, will vote for Biden and we don't get any representation in the House or the Senate. So I, I will essentially be casting a decorative vote. And it, that is not at all the system of government that our founders envisioned. And it's certainly not the, mo- the system of government most Americans would like to have or think we currently have. Yeah. And, you know, I want to also move on to talk about campaign finance. Uh, the day we're recording this, there was news released that, for instance, Joe Biden and the DNC raised $364.5 million just in the month of August, which to me is just a, a gobsmackingly huge number. And we're seeing campaigns raise hundreds of millions of dollars a month now. It, it seems almost a matter of course. And it, it's sort of a, a wild, a wild time. And so what do you see as wrong with this system where hundreds of millions of dollars is needed and raised? And, and how would you improve on it? Well, there's two different pieces here. One is how much money is in our politics? And two is where does the money come from? So it is certainly true that if you can raise a lot of money, regardless of where you raise it from, that will help you become a viable candidate. I would draw a distinction between the way that Joe Biden raised an extraordinary amount of money this last month, which was mostly online, mostly through relatively small dollar donations, versus the way that um, some other candidates raise money, which involves going to extremely rich people and asking them to cut enormous checks. So to give you just some perspective, Biden raised, I think the, the early uh, number was 300 million. I think it's actually a little more. 
But, you know, people said, oh, my gosh, you raised three hundred million dollars. Well, that's one one hundred eighty third of Mike Bloomberg's net worth. (laughs) Um, Right. Mike Bloomberg (laughs) could literally take half about half a cent out of every dollar. And he would have and he would have equaled that amount. And that's like money he would lose in the couch cushion. And because of the Supreme Court's ruling in Citizens United in 2010, people like Mike Bloomberg or Sheldon Edelson on the Republican side who have amounts of money that we just as humans have trouble wrapping our heads around can spend virtually as much of that money as they want on politics. And that creates a huge problem. So, for example, um, you know, uh, 1.5 million Americans came together to donate to Joe Biden this last month. Uh, he raised 360 plus million dollars. Sheldon Edelson could write a check. And again, he would barely notice it was gone. Um, and and that means that his power as a citizen is so much greater than most of ours. And again, this is new. Um, in, in 1974, in the wake of Watergate, we passed much tougher campaign finance reform and much tougher campaign finance laws. And so this era in which Sheldon can pay as much as he wants and invest as much as he wants in politics, this is a new development. And we're seeing government start to reflect the interests of those big donors instead of the interests of the people, especially on the, you know, in the party of Mitch McConnell that embraced the changes to the campaign finance law. You mentioned Mike Bloomberg, and I think some people would point to him and say, well, isn't that an example of you can be one of the literally one of the richest men in the world and you can't necessarily get anywhere. So see, Mike Bloomberg is a great example of money cannot buy elections. Case closed. Let's move on. There's two elements here. So number one, money can't buy elections. What money can buy is votes. Uh, it doesn't mean that money can, you know, it's not like I can go to the vote store and buy a, a vote for a <laughs> certain amount of dollars. But there's no question that if I spend more money, I will get more votes than if I spend less money. That's why politicians keep asking you for money all the time. They don't like doing it. Politicians don't like sending you those emails with like the really weird subject lines or, you know, constantly talking about text this number so you can donate five bucks. They do it because if they have more money, they'll be able to get more votes and they'll be able to win. So that's one element. Um, you know, mon- so the idea that money can't buy elections doesn't prove anything. It's, it is a it's a fact, but it's not a terribly useful fact. The second thing that's important here is to distinguish between financing your own campaign, which is what Mike Bloomberg did uh, not terribly successfully, and financing uh, campaigns for others, which is what Mike Bloomberg did extremely successfully. And and um, you know, as a Democrat, frankly, until they changed the campaign finance laws, which I hope they do, um, until they change them, I hope he'll play by those those rules and help Democrats win elections. So what we saw in the 2020 cycle, first of all, if you have a lot of money, you can immediately become a contender. Um, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, you know, most of us cannot say, uh, I would like to be a serious presidential candidate, but Tom Steyer or Mike Bloomberg, because they were willing to spend a lot of money on it, could suddenly vault themselves into the top tier, you know, the top dozen or so candidates. For a while, Mike Bloomberg was, in fact, the favorite to win. Um, And, you know, he had his political experience. But the reason he was the favorite to win, I think, in large part was he was going to spend a lot of money. That's one piece of it. The second piece of it is I I would just also add we tend to focus too much on the presidency here. So I I don't know that Mike Bloomberg was able to buy him. I mean, clearly couldn't finance a winning campaign for presidency, but he certainly could finance a winning campaign for mayor of New York City, um, which is a very important political office. And so we are seeing a world where how much money you have and how much power you have are related. And more important than that, 
they're more closely related than they have been in most Americans' lifetimes. That's the thing I can't emphasize strongly enough. Money has always been part of politics, but money is much more closely aligned with politics than it was even just 10 or 11 years ago. But what about free speech? I mean, how can you justify limiting political speech? And this is the argument we hear from plenty of conservatives, including Mitch McConnell, you know, which of all the types of speech is the one framers were most concerned about protecting with the First Amendment. And that seems to be go to the heart of democracy, your right to speak your mind about your political views. And isn't any restriction on campaign finance really uh, essentially going against what the framers would have wanted here? Well, I just want to point out Mitch McConnell didn't always argue that. Uh, in 1974, <laughs> 75, right after Watergate, yeah. maybe 76, uh, he was 31 years old, the chair of the Louisville County, Kentucky Republican Party, Jefferson County, Kentucky, I'm sorry, where Louisville is located. And he wrote an op-ed um, for the Louisville Courier where he said, we need tougher campaign finance laws because at the time, a lot of the biggest contributors to politicians were unions. And so tougher campaign finance laws would have benefited Republicans. Now, as that started to switch, Mitch McConnell switched. And so he started to say, never mind, I take back everything that I said. This is all about free speech. Now, I, I want to be clear about this. This is not a, an easy issue. I do think that donating money is related to speech in some way, um, in the same way that if you said, well, you have a right to protest, but you don't have a right to you know, pay for a protest sign. Well, that seems, um, you know, you, you're using a limit on money to restrict speech. The question then becomes how much of a limit makes sense and how much of a limit does not. Um, it used to be up until 2010, there was a, a sense in the courts that the public, there's a public interest in protecting speech and, and, and allowing speech to flourish, which is not the same as allowing speech via money, but they're related. But there's also an interest in preventing corruption. And the government has, in its uh, service of the public interest, it has an obligation to think about how to prevent corruption. And certainly, if we pass laws to prevent corruption, we should be allowed to do that. What John Roberts and the Roberts Court said in 2010 was basically, never mind. There's no interest in fighting corruption. The only thing that matters is protecting speech. And therefore, you can spend essentially an unlimited amount of money on politics. So. To me, this is a question not of who's right between do we protect speech or do we fight corruption. It's a question of balance. It's always a question of balance. But now we have no balance at all, and we're living in this very unbalanced country, and we're seeing the consequences. Yeah, and I think at least in that decision, part of the problem was the court's definition of corruption, which was basically a quid pro quo. If you can't show money actually buying a vote, then there's then it's not really corruption as opposed to undue influence, which is what it sounds to me like you and a lot of folks who want to reform campaign finance are more concerned about. Yeah, that that's exactly right. Now, I, I think you also in the book talk about how how much less effective government has gotten at well governing, I guess. And and I, I think that, again, this is an issue where a lot of conservatives might say, no, 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 that's a that's a feature, not a bug. We don't want we want it to be hard for government to do things, to impose its will on the people. So actually, if the result of all this is that government does less stuff, hey, that sounds like a really good outcome. What do you think? So I think that um, we're living through that argument right now and realizing that that is not uh, it's not quite so simple. Um, and and I think that that 
is uh, I also want to make a distinction here. Um, that's a reasonable argument in that you can argue it. Sure, you can try to convince people of it. But what we're seeing is instead people not try to win the argument, but people saying, I don't think I can win that argument, so I'm going to change the rules so that it, I don't even have to have that argument. Mm. Um, even if Americans don't agree with me, even if they want government to take a more active role in this way or that way, we will find a way of preventing them from doing that. So that's very different. Um, you know, this idea that Americans support limited government, uh, maybe so, but then limited government should only happen if Americans support it. And instead, what we see at the moment is, you know, Americans don't want government to do everything, but Americans want government to take a more active role preventing gun violence, fighting climate change doing something about COVID right now, um, doing something about the economy, you know, providing economic relief to people who really desperately need it in this crisis. And Americans aren't getting what they want, which is very different than saying, this is how you know, uh, Americans support limited government, so this is what we're getting. This is not what we want. We're getting the opposite of what we want. And that feels fundamentally anti-democratic. And you feel a lot of these problems go over even into the judicial branch, which I think of the three branches still has the sort of the highest regard among among Americans. So that's going down. And, and I was hoping, you know, in a little bit of time we have left, if you could talk a little bit about what you see as the issues with the judicial branch, the federal courts, and what sort of solutions you think might help to minimize some of these problems. So I think the issue with the federal courts is historically the the deal has been we've allowed the courts to take on a, a, an enormous amount of power. The courts started as by far the weakest branch of government. Today, they're arguably the most powerful. And the reason is because Americans have generally uh, explicitly or implicitly said, well, politicians seem pretty self-interested. We don't always trust them for some good reasons. But the courts are independent of politics. The courts are about principles. So let's give them the power to be the ultimate deciders on more and more issues. Now, in the last 40 years, judicial independence has really come under attack. And again, I, I am a Democrat, so you know that that is um, that happens to be true. But I think an objective looking, uh, an objective look at the situation makes it very clear that one party was has been responsible for that attack on judicial independence far more than the other. And what I mean by that is as follows. When Democrats have had the White House, they have tended to view the judiciary as a way uh, their their priority has been increasing diversity on the bench. So more non-white judges, more women judges. When Republicans have had power, they have tended to use their appointments to very aggressively try to put people who agree with them ideologically and politically onto the bench. And to just point out two ways that that happens. So number one, um, Republicans beginning with Reagan, started to ask people how they would rule on specific cases. Um, that had always been something that was a line that didn't get crossed. Republicans started to cross that line, so sort of to demand explicit promises of future rulings in exchange for nomination. And that is a real shot right at the heart of judicial independence. And then a second way, which is kind of interesting, is this sort of laundering of political operatives into uh, judges. And so what you see is a very, in, in fairness, very effective, a very strategic way of you nominate, you take a political operative who has no business on the bench, you nominate them to a sort of nonpartisan sounding state board, for example, so that they kind of 
uh, get laundered from their political uh, nature. And then you appoint them to the district court and then the, the circuit court and then potentially eventually to the Supreme Court. And what you do is you're taking people who think politically first and foremost, but you're putting them in the judiciary. And you've seen some, some judges recently who have been rated not qualified by the American Bar Association. Um, you've seen judges who have made outrageous statements. Um, and then also you've seen judges who uh, literally broke the law. I mean, you have what Stephen Menashe is a, now a judge. Uh, on a federal appeals court. But about a year before that, he was at the Department of Education and literally engineered a scheme to break the law. So you have um, the trust in the judiciary that's being fractured. And I think the the uh, the important thing is for the elected branches of government to say, fundamentally, if you can't uphold your part of the bargain, if the judiciary can't stay independent, we're going to think about how to make sure to uphold ours. We're going to make sure to think about how to reclaim some of that power from the judiciary. And we've talked, we can talk about ways to do that, but that mindset is the important thing. Mm -hmm. And and it sounds to me that you, your argument would be that this isn't just a natural progression in partisanship. And so we should, we would expect to see the same thing under say uh, a Biden administration, but this is something that, that Republicans have taken to an extreme that we wouldn't necessarily expect under a Democratic administration with what Republicans would call a liberal activist judge being kind of whitewashed and pushed through the system sort of thing. You wouldn't see this happen in the same ways in, in I, I kind of pointed two ways this would not happen. So number one, um, for better or for worse, Democrats take qualifications much more seriously right now than Republicans do. So somebody who's, you know, you saw Justin Walker who was sort of a political ally of Mitch McConnell's, and he's now an appeals court judge on the D.C. Circuit, which is the second most important court in the United States. He's 37 years old. His real qualification is that he's politically allied with McConnell. That's it. And that you would just you don't see that stuff on the Democratic side. Um, I can you can argue about why you don't see it, but you just don't. Yeah. Um, the second thing is you would see uh, other uh, important issues other than politics. Um, number one, trying to have the federal bench reflect America would be very important to Democrats. So you would continue to see an effort to put more um, non-white judges and more female judges onto the courts. I think Biden has pledged to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. And I think that's actually, I'll just sort of stop with that example. That's such a remarkable difference. So Trump, when he was running, he pledged, I'm going to nominate one of these 25 conservative judges. All that I care about is that they're conservative. And that's all my voters care about. They'll they'll rule the right way on the following issues. And Biden has said, I will nominate a judge who will reflect to make sure that the court ref better reflects America. Right. They're just two different sets of priorities. But one of them maintains judicial independence and one of them doesn't because Biden is not saying I will only nominate a black woman who will vote the way that I want. Mm. Now, I know we're just about out of time. I have one final question for you. I think that a lot of conservative listeners who've gotten to this point would say, you know what? Hey, we're maybe maybe my side is working the system so that we get more conservative Republicans elected. But aren't you just basically a liberal Democrat who's trying to work the system to make it easier to get more liberal Democrats elected? Uh, what, what would you say to people who would make that make that argument? I guess what I would say is. Um, when you are benefiting from a system that is very unfair, uh, balance, you know, it's funny, people say the same thing when it comes to uh, privilege in other ways, right? But balance starts to look like unfairness. But I don't want to see a one party democracy. And I, I, I'm like I said, I'm a Democrat, but 
I wouldn't want to see a system of government where Democrats win every election because that leads inevitably to corruption and authoritarianism. It would happen if, you know, if Democrats won every election, no matter what, you, you would have it would be really bad for the country. Um, the thing is, right now, we're in danger of that happening on the Republican side in too many ways. And so what we want to see is a system where Americans get to decide what happens to America. That doesn't seem like too much to ask. And if you're scared of a system in which Americans decide what happens to America, then I think it's a moment to do a little bit of soul searching and say, why is it that I'm so worried that the ideas I have for this country can't possibly be popular with the people who live here? Um, maybe they're not good ideas. I think it's worth considering that possibility. Okay. And I'll, before we go, I have to say that, you know, so many books about reforming democracy are these sort of deadly earnest and boring is boring as hell sort of things. But one thing that sets your book apart is that it's it's well, it's oftentimes very, very funny. It's a great read. And I would encourage everyone to check it out. It's democracy in one book or less. David Litt, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's show. We hope you like what you heard. If you'd like a second full-length Politics Guys episode every single week, as opposed to just these occasional interviews, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions of every episode, as well as other good stuff. To get the details and to become a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you can't afford to become a supporter, to email me at mike at politicsguys.com and I will get you full access to that second episode every single week. And if being a monthly supporter is too much of a commitment, but you still like to help us out occasionally, you can do that too through PayPal. You'll find a link on our website, politicsguys.com slash support. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, that is a big help as well as leaving ratings and reviews and especially sharing your favorite episodes on social media. That's a big deal to us. And if you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, or whatever, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. For more great discussions, check out our bipartisan politics subreddit. You'll find the URL in the show notes. We've also got a Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.